0: Hello and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Kate. I'm Aaron, And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week we choose a new country at random, we learn a little bit about this country, and then we will listen to their anthem. After listening, we rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. Now we don't want you to think that because of the title we're huge fans of Canada. In fact, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly throughout the show, and we do not expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. So today, we have an episode um, on a teeny tiny little country called Nauru.
1: Yeah, this is one I know nothing about going in.
0: I did not either. I asked a few people if they'd ever heard of Nauru, and they all just gave me kind of a blank, like, "What?" Yeah, is that? So, you know, it's all good. We're going to learn about it together. Um, I'm unofficially titling this episode Blood, Sweat, and Phosphate.
1: Fuck. Because... Coming off another big phosphate one, too. <laughs> yeah, so. there's
0: a lot of phosphate. Okay. Kind of everything is about phosphate. Yeah, that so, was
1: the deal with Sarawi as well. Yeah,
0: so. it's gross. It Bad things happen when there's phosphate around. Um, So the thing is, there are some parts of this that are pretty like thin on the ground for information. Sure. Um, that includes the Anthem history, although there is some, but it's not a lot. And um, also the prehistory.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're coming off an episode where I had literally nothing for Anthem history. Yeah,
0: I have like one bullet point about prehistory and like some stuff about the Anthem, but we'll get there when we get there. Great. Um, So to talk a little bit about where Nauru is, because that's not obvious, (laughs) is that it is like quite literally out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. Kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, It's part of Micronesia off the eastern coast of Australia and Papua New Guinea, if you can picture a little bit where that is
1: okay and when you say small like how small are we talking like
0: you can drive around it in an easy 20 minutes
1: oh fuck okay
0: yes it is the third smallest country in the world um after vatican city and monaco and the island is surrounded by a coral reef so there's not a lot of natural harbors and it's actually really difficult kind of to get there okay Um, (laughs) the the geography because this is going to be important There's like kind of a flat ring of beach that goes around the outside. It's not a lot, though. It's quite thin. And then the middle part kind of like rises up quite sharply in like a flat tabletop. Okay. Kind of a thing. And that is was covered in like jungle and vegetation.
1: Okay, so there's like a, a ring of beach and then a plateau with a bunch of jungle on it. Essentially. Well, a little bit of jungle on it.
0: <laughs> it may be growing back now a little, but we will see. I just
1: mean it's very small.
0: <laughs> yes, it's very small. We will also see the horrific destruction of...
1: Oh, good. Okay. A
0: lot of stuff. So... um also, it is worth noting that there are no rivers or any real sources of fresh water
1: okay, on so the it's island. Okay, just totally ocean-bound, no sort of inland water. Yes,
0: there is a lagoon. Okay. But I read a source that said it's, like, pretty gross, and I think brackish was the word they used. Okay. So not, like, great drinking water yeah. for people or great for agriculture or anything. So there is rain, obviously, which people have been collecting for, like, hundreds, thousands of years now um, to sustain themselves but it puts you at a really big risk for drought right um if it doesn't rain well it didn't rain and that's that's all there is um this will kind of be important a little bit and we'll see why the geography of the place really has like really heavily influenced its history right um so not a lot of the early history is known as i said um about three thousand years ago indigenous people from neighboring islands came and landed and settled and they lived extremely isolated lives from everyone in the area which they think contributes to the uniqueness of the Nauru language. Cool. Um, It is still spoken today but mostly everybody speaks English. Okay. Um, Europeans first land um, in 1798 The population on the island at this time is made up of like 12 groups, which are each led by a chief. This is also still kind of important and still kind of acknowledged uh, to this day. So 1798 brings a British boat called the Snow Hunter, which I find hilarious because there's no snow (laughs) to be found, um, which was sort of passing through on the way to China. It is captained by one John Fearn who is greeted at the time by like a couple hundred Nauruans who see this big ship and they all get in their canoes and they go on out. Okay. Excuse me, to like see what's what's going on. Um, nobody disembarked this time around, but Fearn got, I guess, a good first impression because he named Nauru Pleasant Island. Okay and it's that's true nice. it, it is nice and it's true if you look at the photos like the beaches are beautiful right it's all like coconuts and all
1: the people wrote uh, out to views. say hello everybody and, yeah. came out
0: to say hi he's kind of a I'm sure like a pompous british dude so he's yeah. like oh that's great they think i'm cool like <laughs> i think you're cool too um so that's kind of weird and hilarious in the first instance of european contact um so this is probably and unfortunately the most like happy thing that happens in this episode um, here on out. It's, right, because
1: we're off to a really positive start. It's
0: not going to be good <laughs> after this. Um, so so um, one thing that's also important that ties into Australia, and I'm sure we'll talk about more when we cover Australia. And I'm sure many people are familiar with this already, is that Australia and the surrounding islands are being used as British prisons.
1: Okay, so is Nauru one of the penal colonies then? It is not. Okay.
0: But it still has a role to play here. Um, Australia also, as a point, does not come out of this episode looking super good. Sure. Um, there's going to be a couple instances where you're going to be like, ah, shit, Australia. Why? So that's going to be fun. Um, so one guy, name of John Jones. Um, shows up on Nauru in 1830, and he is a runaway from the penal colony on Norfolk Island um, and looking to kind of get out and take a beach vacation.
1: Okay. Um, So he's just looking to, like chill and take a beat on Nauru basically yeah and this was
0: not uncommon people prisoners did this they would escape when they could and they would go and like they obviously can't go home so they just like go to a nearby beach island right and they're they're called beachcombers um, okay? and they hang out
1: um
0: (laughs) they don't have to be in prison anymore yeah so that's something that's a plus um Unfortunately, though, Jones, for like some reason, murders a lot of the other beachcombers and like other runaways and <laughs> then tries to blame the murders on now ruined chiefs. And obviously they don't think this is super cool. What so they the exile fuck? him. I don't know. To the nearby island of Banaba. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess
1: I guess some of these people were were there for a reason. But God damn. Yeah. I that was not where I expected that story to go. I think he
0: was just kind of power hungry and like thought he could just, I don't know. Maybe that the Nauruans would just be like, okay, cool. You can be in charge. Tr- I don't know. I don't know what his motive was for that. Um, another guy, William Harris, who is also a fugitive from Norfolk Island, uh, shows up in 1842
1: to... Where is Norfolk Island just like between Australia and Nauru? Yeah, it's yeah. around. I'm not okay. sure exactly
0: where. Um Swimming distance, maybe?
1: Fair or like rafting, rafting distance, distance, maybe yeah. Um
0: certainly they don't have like motor boats or anything like that. Um so he shows up in 1842 and takes more of like an integration approach than Jones did, which is definitely the right call. He um helps the naruans negotiate with European traders. He lives like in the society and even goes on to marry a Nauruan woman, and they had, I guess, a bunch of kids according to what I was reading. Cool. Um, By 1870, though, there's a a popular drink going around called sour toddy that's made from fermented coconut flowers. And also at this point, Nauruans have a lot of access to guns and from trades with Europeans. Right. So we're kind of brewing for a problem here.
1: Just a lot of drunk folks with guns or... Yes. Okay. There's a
0: drunk fight and one of the chiefs is shot and killed. Then Nauru essentially falls into violent chaos and this causes enormous rifts between families and like the larger tribes that we talked about. So it's, it's ridiculous. It's complete and total disorganized. Yup. Um, and just cause a drunk guy shot a gun wrong, maybe by accident, we'll never know. Um, And then in 1888, Nauru is incorporated into Germany's Marshall Islands protectorate. And this, like, Germany then sends missionaries and administrators who finally manage to, like, chill out the violence a little bit. Germany then negotiates with the British Phosphate Company to allow for what's going to be the really bad part to kind of kick off here. in 19 sorry 1899, um, geologist Albert Ellis was looking at a rock, apparently, that was propping open a door at the Pacific Islands Company in Sydney, Australia, and he was told that it was petrified wood from Nauru. It was not petrified wood from Nauru, and he knew this. Um, it was phosphate. And Ellis just like spied himself a fortune waiting to be made. Oh my God! And he goes to Nauru in 1901 and finds that essentially the whole of that plateau we were talking about—that's phosphate of lime. The whole thing. The whole thing. Oh
1: my God! Yes. Like
0: going down. We're talking about like hundreds of thousands of tons. So we're talking about, phosphate.
1: like, you know, obviously a much smaller surface area, but this country's sort of Canadian shield equivalent yeah, is just phosphate through and through.
0: And coral, I think.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. So um, the mining operation... The one good thing that comes out of I guess, is that the mining operation doesn't really affect people's homes because people all lived like around the beach area a little bit more where it was cooler and you could like maybe grow something.
1: That's down good. So there. we weren't at least ripping out people's homes to set up these mines.
0: It's a small win, but we'll take what we can get. Um, the environmental impact through the early 1900s is... Astounding! It basically involves clearing the forest, scraping the topsoil, as it would, and then you dig. Yeah, um, with like no regard for anything. Jesus. Um, the source I was reading for this quoted a National Geographic photographer named of Rosamond Dobson Roan, who in 1921 writes, "Quote." A worked out phosphate field is a dismal, ghastly tract of land with its thousands of upstanding white coral pinnacles from 10 to 30 feet high, its cavernous depths littered with broken coral, abandoned tram tracks, discarded phosphate baskets, and rusted American kerosene tins, End quote. There is some concern during World War I because Germany, for all intents and purposes, still kind of owns Nauru um, and occupies, kind of. Uh, Australians in the First World War ousted most of the German people who were there, and Nauru becomes a mandated territory within the League of Nations, mm-hmm. giving administrative power to England, New Zealand, and Australia, who were the three, like, real fuckers here.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> that, not dissimilar to what we saw in Togo way back in episode yeah, one. Yeah, it's,
0: it's very similar. Um, in practice, though, Australia does most of the work.
1: Sure, the, like, I think it was more New Zealand and Togo, but yeah. uh, the same... Circumstances led to it
0: totally, and it makes a lot of sense. Australia is the bigger country than New Zealand, certainly, and it's way yeah. closer than England, so like it's logical. Um, it's not good necessarily, but it's logical. Um, Nauru in the twenties was exporting two hundred thousand metric tons of phosphate every year, um, and this continues to like ramp up over the next twenty years. So there's an enormous, enormous phosphate. Yeah,
1: that's an unbelievable number. It,
0: is incredible for the size of this country yeah. and the like few hundred people maybe a 1000 something people who are living there it's like
1: but like they're literally just stealing mm-hmm. the country mm-hmm. like the actual the whole thing. physical land. yes
0: <laughs> yes that is exactly not like what we're, were going to steal
1: it and live there like Mm-mm. we're we're going to break it up and sell it and yep. ship it that's fucking insane yep
0: it's no good it's yep so um, farmers in New Zealand, Australia and England are using most of the phosphate that's being mined here and they're getting it way cheaper than they should have because Australia holds Nauru and Australia was part of the what is now the renamed British Phosphate Commissioners, um, which it seems was established like more or less exclusively to manage Nauru and phosphate. Right. That's all they're doing, and they're doing it real shady.
1: I'm sure they've got another source or two, but how could they even remotely compare to this one? Yep,
0: yep. Um, World War II rolls around, and that means the invasion of the Japanese army in 1942, looking to set up a strategic base. The position of Nauru is such that, although it's quite difficult to live there, um, it is well-placed kind of near Australia and in between some things so if you were looking for an airstrip as the Japanese were um, there'd be not a bad place to put one
1: yeah absolutely
0: so the Japanese show up and they bring in several thousand people including military people to mine phosphate because they're going to take that over now um, (laughs) and to build an airstrip Um, but the island Cannot support this many people. Of course not. We're talking 6,000 people, where before there were like 1,800. It's an insane population increase. And you may recall also that the amount of fertile land is limited. There's no fresh water. And, well, like, they might have had good fertile land if they didn't mine the phosphate. Yeah, That's they what they're doing. they
1: might have had decent fresh water they if they done. didn't mine the phosphate. Um, yeah,
0: But they, they have none of those things. Um, so the Japanese organize a evacuation in like big old air quotes to get the now ruins out of the way because they're taking up space and the country they've lived on forever. So in 1943, but like
1: it seems everyone agrees we're just going to break up and use for other mm-hmm. shit. Like no one is standing up for the now ruins at this point in the story, at least. no, it's, it's just those fucking 2,000 people against the world. Yes. That's fucking ridiculous. Yes. Um, so in
0: 1943, some 1,200 Nauruan people are taken to Truk, um, which is now called the Chuk Islands, um, a group of volcanic islands in Micronesia to do some forced labor for the Japanese military. Um, some other Nauruans who don't, go to talk, are sent to other parts of Nauru, um, sort of away from where they had originally lived. Right. So they just get booted off the good parts, basically. So the Japanese can, I will remind you, build their airstrip and mine their phosphate. Also,
1: where's the airstrip going in? Is it on the plateau?
0: I'm not sure. I think it kind of sticks out the side of the beach. Okay. I think I saw a picture. Cool. It might be now the airport. There. Honestly, that, why there. wouldn't
1: you? Um, Can if you've already got a runway and shit, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, it, I think it, it sticks out a little awkward. Like, um, I saw a photo somewhere along the way. Um, a fun offshoot of this Japanese invasion is that now Nauru is getting bombed by the U.S. because of the Japanese because, airstrip. Yeah,
1: now they're Japanese territory, yeah, exactly.
0: Right. Um, for like two years, essentially. Um, Nauru. Has been reduced to like a bit of a footnote in World War II. It's not something we talk about. But it as, sounds like
1: not an unimportant It's place not in unimportant. The it's just theater, small. Like, yeah.
0: Um, but I think it was like, I don't know that much about World War II. I know some stuff. It was like, I think kind of a big deal.
1: That's interesting. Um,
0: yeah. And kind of doesn't get talked about that much.
1: Because um, a, lo- a lot of the countries we've looked into for World War II, either they've been in that sort of Central Eastern Europe where. It was all happening mm-hmm. or like the U.S. pulled them in after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Those are most of what we've seen.
0: Yes. Or they were neutral. We've had a couple yeah. of those
1: too, but, but we the, haven't hit
0: the big ones in yeah. France. We haven't talked about them yet. Yeah, It's
1: really since um, Togo that we had this sort of fighting over strategic yeah. tiny islands.
0: A little bit East more That's true. But not on the same yeah level they did they also had a horrific japanese invasion um so i did though interestingly find a paper online kind of an academic type thing where i got a lot of this information about what happened in Nauru during world war ii and i could have gone way into it way more than i did there was this person who's like clearly really done their research right. but also is one of those things where like the author is citing themselves in their paper, mm-hmm. because I think they're the only one right, who did the research. They just are the foremost um,
1: expert on this. Topic. Yeah, was the impression yeah.
0: I was getting from this, and I'd be honestly like kind of curious to dig into it more. And if anyone's looking for a PhD thesis, I think there's something to be had in here. Anyway, um, so in 1945, as World War II is wrapping up, um, Australia takes Nauru back from the Japanese. Most Nauruans are brought home, with casualties cited at around 500 people which, which is, is
1: still staggering considering
0: how many of them how, there were to few of with. them
1: there were to begin with yes yeah.
0: absolutely um through the 50s and 60s Nauru gains some ground in governing themselves they finally gain independence on January 31st 1968 which is the 22nd anniversary of the day that Nauruans came home from Truk um that island where they were sent for the labor and hence why it was chosen as their independence day um So as part of this, Nauru also gains control over the phosphate mining. Frickin' finally.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: This is like several hundred years in the making. I'd be willing to believe
1: they haven't seen a penny from it up until now. We're going to talk about that.
0: We're going to talk about that, Um, which is a huge win for them. Except that now they're running out of phosphate because
1: they've been plundering it for a century. Yeah, with no
0: regard for sustainability or the future or anything like that. Um, the thing that sucks about this also is that Nauru is a really small country with very few industries yeah. besides phosphate mining. So it's basically split down the middle. Most Nauruans are employed by the government. Okay, They have a variety of government jobs, although I think today unemployment is also quite high. Um, and
1: what's the modern population look like?
0: I don't actually know.
1: Okay, we'll I'll look, look into that, that over the break. I've the got break. a couple other questions for you too.
0: Yeah. Um, but then also most of the mining, what mining is being done is usually being done by immigrants, often from China. Um, at one point in the seventies or so, Nauru was incredibly rich per capita. So okay. they had like a lot of money for the number of people that were living Yeah, absolutely. There. This doesn't mean though that like regular people were wealthy. Um, right.
1: You can just have one super wealthy person in a population that small. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Um, one source I was reading said that at the time that there was all this money in such a small country, sports cars got really popular. Okay. Um, although, as I mentioned, it takes a leisurely 20 minutes to drive like slowly yeah. around the island, yeah. which I find how hilarious. Many, how many
1: good long straights do you have <laughs> to really open up that sports car? There's, you know?
0: there's the runway that the That's... Japanese put in. <laughs> But now it's the airport. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Besides that, that's really it. Um, this very much like takes us up to the modern day. But I'm going to say a few more things great, because there's some stuff that's happened more recently that is also important and addresses some of the stuff you brought up. So in 1989, Nauru sued Australia for the phosphate royalties um, dating back to like, you know, a long time ago. A
1: long time a ago. A long time ago. Yep. They
0: settled for 73 million over 20 years.
1: That sounds small. It
0: is. New okay. Zealand and the UK also paid a one time 8.2 million each.
1: Also sounds very small.
0: Indeed. Nauru joins the UN in 1999. And good for them. then Australia did a really shitty thing because oh, they're not done doing shitty things to Nauru yet. And this also puts me in a place where like Australia, I feel, is like Canada, but with more deadly jellyfish. Like
1: Absolutely. Like in terms of, you know, record with treatment towards indigenous people like we we have very similar horrifying records. We do.
0: We do. They definitely had more prisoners than us.
1: Okay. Um, I, I won't pretend to know the the exact details and divergences, but I know that it's it's not good. It's not it's, good. It's not any better um, than it is here.
0: But prisoners I mean like the country was essentially founded like the Right, right, right. By okay. the the penal colonies. Yes. Um, that makes sense. Not about indigenous prisoners, okay. although obviously like I mean, residential school, prison, same thing. Yeah, um, Worse, maybe. I don't know. We're not going to get into that right now. But I also feel Australia has a little bit of like a nice guy kind of reputation. They don't make a lot of noise.
1: I mean, so does Canada. Yes,
0: that's what I'm saying. Yeah. We're very similar in that regard as like peaceful. Absolutely. Easygoing, English speaking countries. And we don't deserve those reputations. No. As in this example that I'm going to cite for you right now. So in 2001, Australia paid Nauru, who are at this point in like not a great financial position, given that they don't have phosphate anymore much and there are no other industries. They pay Nauru to hold asylum seekers who are trying to get into Australia illegally. Um, Nauru allows this because, as I say, they're having trouble diversifying and there's not a lot of money happening there. So they're like, yeah, okay. And this is okay in the short term. Australia pays them. They hold a bunch of asylum seekers in not great conditions. And then in the long term, it's no good. I mean, it's no good anyway, but I was going to say,
1: it sounds like there's only one positive in the short (laughs) term. Anyways,
0: that is true. Um, this has been a mess for Australia and it's not just Nauru. Um,
1: a lot of those smaller islands around there in yeah. similar situations. Yeah. I can see that they
0: have these prisons essentially where they put the asylum seekers who what are only trying to have a better life and they have been criticized roundly by many people like or people who lived there. Also the UN has criticized them for violating quote convention against torture, like they're, they're, it's not good yeah. It's and they're pretending it's fine and it's not. They have scaled this back somewhat um, I think they've at least tried to stop sending people offshore since 2014 but there's obviously still a backlog and so there are still people on Nauru and Papua New Guinea just living in a fun Australian asylum jail Thing and I hate that, yeah, so much. That's it's brutal, horrible. So, that's most of what I had to say about Nauru. Do you have any fun facts? I do, for us? I do. Some of them are fun. Um, sometimes fun <laughs> facts
1: get depressing, it's just a good quirk of this show. This
0: was also a little thin, yeah. Um, I don't think there are any famous. I
1: I left out most of the famous Sarawi people I'd found because they were famous for having atrocities done to them. It it, it just wasn't what I was looking for.
0: Yeah. So um, I have some stuff, though. A lot of them, if you Google this, a lot of the fun facts are like the boring ones. I already told you, like how Nauru is the third smallest country in the world. Um, Others are just generally less fun, like how Nauru is the most obese nation in the world, which is cool um it's also one of the least visited countries in the world okay Um, so given like the small population and lack of tourism barely anyone has been there right or like intends to go in the future
1: yeah
0: which is i guess
1: like why Why would you?
0: There's no reason. Unless you want to see the aforementioned Japanese airstrip.
1: Like, even even <laughs> if I'm someone who wants to go on vacation with no regard for the ethics or whatever of where I'm going, it mm-hmm. doesn't sound like a place that really supports a big resort culture or it anything. Does, there's
0: no... There's not that. Yeah. Do, you look at the photos, there are no hotels on those beaches. Yeah. There's no, like, any anything much. Um... Nauru is also one of twenty-two countries that does not have an army. The flag, at all? yes, cool. Yes, the flag. This is kind of interesting. I'm going to
1: look at the list of those other ones later. That's interesting. Yeah,
0: I didn't really look it up, but it it would definitely be a an interesting sinkhole. Um, the flag, which is actually cool, is a blue background which represents the Pacific Ocean, with a yellow kind of horizontal stripe that okay. runs through the middle, uh, which represents the equator. And then there is a 12-pointed star in the bottom left uh, that represents the the 12 original tribes. Okay, cool. That we saw at the very beginning. So the flag is neat. I think it looks cool. It's less, like, symmetrical and not just the stripes. Like, so many people do the stripes. Yeah, I know. I want to have, like, a...
1: And then they expect me to be able to tell them apart? Yeah,
0: it's like they all I'm look sorry. the same. I'm sorry. All
1: you folks from stripe flag countries, I'm never going to be able to tell you all apart. It's not because I don't respect your cultures or whatever. I simply don't respect your flag designs.
0: Yes, I feel like we should have an international overhaul where everybody-
1: No more stripes. No more stripes. Or at least like something on top of the stripes. Yes. So I can be like, that's the thing. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for- listening
0: (laughs) (laughs) no i agree it's also one of those things too where i feel in elementary school there's always a project where your teacher's like here's a piece of paper draw a country's flag on it and it's like very strategic because you don't want to be sitting there coloring for like 10 hours just the green part and then you have to color for another 10 hours the red part yeah and then you have to color for another 10 you know what i mean yeah you want the ones i don't know one time i definitely did like the united nations flag and that was a bad decision because it's just blue with those little stars and the blue is like, oh, they need paint for this or something. Teachers, consider this. <laughs> okay. Um, there is also no capital city in Nauru. Oh, it's, interesting. There's like a few cities. There's like one sort of big one where most of the government stuff happens, but it's not officially the capital. Yeah. Um, and the national bird is called the Great Frigate Bird. I think I'm saying that right which is black with like a bulbous red front part. And they are hilarious. We will nice. post a picture. Awesome. Because um, I, was, I was feeling pretty depressed. And then I was like, oh, let's just see if they have like a bird or something. So I Googled it. And it's this hilarious like cartoon bird. And I was like, oh, good. At least there's a funny cartoon bird to lighten the mood a little bit. So I saved that one for last. So those are my fun facts. Great. Um, I've
1: got a couple questions for you before we go into the break great, here. Let's hear them. Uh, So, like I said earlier, I'm just curious about Nauru's modern population. Mm -hmm. And then I've got a couple questions about phosphates. Sure. Uh, I don't know that much about it. Yeah. What are they used for? A fertilizer. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, I guess if they are really running out, uh, then maybe not as high as they they once might have. Mm -hmm. But uh, where does Nauru rank in... Modern phosphate production and oh, just out of okay. curiosity, where does Sarawi slash Morocco come in on that list as well? Yeah,
0: that's cool. I believe mm-hmm.
1: most of the most slash all of the phosphate mines in the claimed territory of the Sarawi Republic are in the like Morocco held right. portion of it. So I think well, Morocco yeah. holds all the phosphates. Sure. But yeah,
0: but we can still look at it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Those are good questions. We will look into that. Um, I will talk also briefly about the food that we're going to be making today.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited for this one. So
0: I did some research on the food and like everything is coconuts.
1: Everything, yeah. You cannot do
0: anything without coconuts. We
1: were talking about making coconut fish, but we've just yes. eaten a lot of fish recently. So so decided not to.
0: Yes. So instead we're making coconut mousse. Great. Because we can't get away from the coconuts. So it was pretty easy. I heated some coconut milk with some shredded coconut. You're supposed to have fresh. I didn't do that. It's going to be dried. Sorry.
1: I'll forgive you. Um, Someday.
0: (laughs) I was honestly just intimidated (laughs) about cracking open a coconut and then having to shred it somehow. I was like, ah, I don't live in a tropical enough place for that.
1: We don't have any Um, machetes around the place.
0: No, and I can remember also, I don't know, when I was a kid, we got a coconut a couple of times. You have to like drill the holes in it and then empty the water. And then we were like hammering it on the deck which we don't have the facilities to do that here we're gonna get in so much trouble our landlords are gonna be like the fuck are you doing and i'll be like i am trying to open a coconut they'll be like or punch holes in the walls i don't know anyway so we're not doing that um also fish is a popular food in nauru because yes, hence it's, it's an island it's an island there's a lot of you know and the coral yeah and the fish i think the coral's taken a bit of a hit Honestly, sure. Regarding the phosphate I mining.
1: Say that's a safe um, <laughs> bet for all coral near Australia.
0: Oh. Save the oceans, everybody. Alright, we're gonna take a break, listen to some anthems. Um, this one is called Nauru Buyama or Song of Nauru. Awesome, can't wait.
1: Nauru <laughs> Sim.
0: So, we listened to some anthems, we ate some coconut mousse, and we're going to get into the history a little bit. Great. I have some answers to your questions. Excellent. Maybe we should start with that. Sure. So, the current population in Nauru is estimated at around 10,000.
1: Okay. So, still very, very small. Very small. But quite a bit larger than back then. Yes, yeah.
0: definitely. Like, there's been a, a significant increase since World War II, but it's still not big yeah. by any means. Um, phosphate production... This is quite interesting. Um, I checked a couple of sources because who knows what this stuff. Sure. And Nauru doesn't crack the top 10 as of like 2020.
1: Yeah. Um, If if their mines have been largely depleted, then there's no reason they would.
0: No, there is not. Um, First is China for phosphate production, followed second by Morocco and West Sahara.
1: Right. So it's up there.
0: Yes. And very diplomatically called West Sahara. Yes. Yes. So I thought that was kind of neat. The coconut mousse, I was actually quite pleasantly surprised with. It was delicious. Gelatin scares me, but that was delicious.
1: Yeah, it turned Um, out really good.
0: It was great. So no regrets there. I have to say this podcast has like taught me things about coconut milk and coconuts in general that I did not know. Um, It's so like not a staple here. Yeah. And it is everywhere that they grow coconuts. Everybody's (laughs) eating them. (laughs) So that's been fun. Um, But it was quite, I don't know. Light and fluffy. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this anthem. Great. Um, called Nauru Buyama or Song of Nauru. So it was adopted, as many anthems are, at Independence in 1968. Lyrics are by Margaret Hendry, or Andrie. I don't know if she's French. I don't think she's French. Okay. She's from Nauru, but the last name is, anyway. Um, who is maybe our first female lyricist?
1: It's possible. We'd have to go back and look. But...
0: Maybe. Uh, but certainly like one of the few women mm-hmm. to crack. It has
1: been th- largely men, for sure. The
0: National Anthem is writing things so good on you, Margaret. <laughs> um, music is by a guy by the name of Lawrence Henry Hicks. And this is interesting. So we were talking a little bit about and I noticed when I was listening to the anthem about how there is a little section that is just lifted from the Canadian national anthem yeah, or vice fully, versa.
1: Yeah. Fully like the exact same melody as O Canada. Like were these pop songs coming out, they would get sued over it. Yes,
0: totally. Um so let me tell you a little bit about Hicks and then I will tell you my fan theory. Okay, great. About how
1: <laughs> I, I how can't wait.
0: This came to be. So um Hicks was a military composer and a leader of something called the Black Watch Military Band which sounds very cool and I think was just a military band. Okay. Um, He was born in London, England, and his father was a clarinet player in the British Army. This is very interesting to me. I know people play in military bands. I don't ever think about it. So I was intrigued um, to learn this about him. And this is... Like, he went all over the place, international-like, and composed for other armies and trained other armies. And one of the armies... That or the military bands that he coached, was the Canadian one in 1942. And he actually took part in World War II with the 4th Canadian Armored Division, which intrigues me. Um, After the war, Hicks toured with the Black Watch Band um, in New Zealand and was the inaugural director of music for the Royal Australian Air Force. So it seems that he was kind of just in the right place at the right time when Nauru independence happened. I gleaned from Wikipedia that the lyrics came after the music, but I don't have a date for this. It was all very murky. Um, here's what I think, because the Canadian national anthem was only officially adopted in 1980, but I was oh, reading, shit. but I was reading that it's like kind of existed since the late 1800s. Okay, so it's been around. What I think...
1: I can't believe it's that recent. Yeah, I know, me
0: neither. I think there were some other things before that they were like, oh, we'll use this, or we'll use... I think
1: it was God Save the Queen before. Yeah, plus,
0: what about the Maple Leaf Forever, is that?
1: I don't know if that was ever the anthem.
0: A thing? Anyway, we'll get there when we get there. Um, So, what I think is that Hicks spent so much time in Canada with Canadian musicians and then with them in the war that he like heard the Canadian anthem so much that it like went in his head a little bit. And then when he came around to writing the Nauruan anthem, I don't think he did it on purpose. Yeah. But I think it just kind of came out.
1: I'm sure there's only like a small handful of Canadians that have heard the Nauruan anthem at all to notice. Totally. Like,
0: we don't, we're not listening to each other's anthems. No. Um, but it's that like, with glowing hearts we see the yeah, rise. It's, it's, it's just the right out there. the exact same melody. Yeah. Um, which just, I can't, so that's my fan theory. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty plausible.
0: Um, Margaret Andre, unfortunately, um, we don't know much about. She was Nauruan and we know she wrote the Nauruan language lyrics for the anthem. Um, but she has one of those biographies where you look her up and it's like,
1: she wrote the she anthem. wrote the anthem, yeah.
0: and it's like oh, okay, and so that's kind of all I know about that. And cool. I hate this kind of because of course, like the British guy gets a whole history, yeah. and the indigenous Nauruan lady is like, eh, ah, who cares? So that sucks a little bit. Um, that's what I know about the anthem. Great, it's not a ton, but it's a little bit and a fun sound bite about the Canadian anthem yeah. also, which I was not expecting that to tie in. So let's maybe get into some ratings a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. So lyrics, first off, I have to say these do not do that much for no, me. No,
1: they are pretty bland.
0: It's pretty bland. It's like, let's write something that everybody can agree on. Yeah. Um. So
1: I like it's so short too that I don't even have any real passages I want to look at here. It's it's Kind of a nothing lyric. Yeah. It's a good country. We hope good things happen for it.
0: I kind of like where they say, um, we all join in together to honor your flag. Okay. It's not, they don't always talk about the flag. That's fair. There's not too much God stuff, but a little bit. Yeah. I
1: don't think it's. Bad. It's but not it's, bad. It's, it's, it's just... one stanza and it doesn't really blow my hair no, back. No, it is. All is I'm saying. This is
0: pretty dull with not a lot to kind of be getting on with. I think I'm going to give this like a four and I think that's pretty generous. Yeah,
1: I think I'm going three and a half.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, how do we feel about the music?
1: I mean, they lifted <laughs> the okay <O'Canada laughs> melody. Yeah. Uh, we've been. I like to think very mm. transparent on this show about our feelings of, on O Canada.
0: <laughs> so don't go stealing so, the Canadian anthem and thinking you
1: did a good taking job. Taking inspiration from it. We're not gonna award you for
0: that. Yeah, I thought the I thought the instrumental version held up pretty well yeah I mean again, it's not a bad song I, it's
1: not a bad song it's kind of a
0: nothing it's, song
1: it's just yeah kind of nothing okay. I think I'm going for a, I think I would in a vacuum give this like a four four and a half mm-hmm. but because they stole from Oh Canada not which is not a good source hopefully <laughs> uh, I'm giving them a three three
0: okay um yeah I'm gonna go f- four again for this because i liked the instrumental version okay
1: background so there is some yeah the background's not nothing actually i think there's some interesting stuff going on
0: yeah i think hicks is an interesting guy for sure
1: yeah certainly Um, like it's it's fun how it was just this sort of quirk of circumstance that allowed him to be yeah. there and write. And he was just there music. and they were like yeah. oh you
0: write music write this and he's like all right as far as I can tell so I think that's um, fun
1: I think that's like a really interesting way for it to have played out um I think I'm gonna go maybe five and a half for the background story okay
0: I'm gonna go six I think significance as previously mentioned the lyrics are kind of nothing yeah and the music is kind of nothing so I find it is not particularly significant there's people who've like seen some shit and i know and they made their independence day like the anniversary of when they all came back from the right there's like, some cool stuff there's here. some
1: symbolism to be building on here and yet
0: it doesn't come through maybe there's, there's
1: a like zero specifics
0: zero except
1: May- for like mentioning Nauru, but that seems like the bare minimum.
0: <laughs> you at least have to tell people what country you're talking about when you write an anthem. Otherwise, no one will know. Okay. I don't know. I think there's a possibility it's lost in translation.
1: It's possible for sure. But
0: well, we can only go on what we have, so unfortunately, significance for me, I think it's going to be like a 3.
1: Yeah, I'm Again. going I'm going for a 2.
0: Okay. Okay. And X factor. Unfortunately, given all the aforementioned yeah. lapses in
1: It doesn't have a whole ton going for there's it. There
0: is no X Factor here. And I think it sucks because this country has some X factor. Oh, the
1: the history was fascinating. You kept telling me that you weren't finding that much info. And I'm I'm definitely gonna look more into uh that the whole Nauru situation in World War Two—that sounds really fascinating. Yeah, I'll send
0: you the really dense paper that I found. Thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, but uh, yeah, there's Th- three. I'm, I'm going another two.
0: Yeah. Okay. I think I'm gonna go two point five. I hate this. Okay. So that's not gonna be great. We will add this up and then we will See where come it back. Lands. Okay. So that gives us a rather unfortunate 35.5, yeah. which puts us well below the C average.
1: That's going that's to put this in second last overall, mm. just barely eking out Brunei and avoiding that last place spot.
0: Oh, okay. So unfortunately now, Rue, you may get made fun of on the way out. As previously mentioned, this is not about you or your country. <laughs> it's only about your anthem as objectively as we can make it. So, shall we roll now and see what I'm going to do in two weeks? Let's do it. All right.
1: Get yourself number 87.
0: 87 gives me. Ooh, this is going to be fun. Okay. Italy.
1: Oh, boy.
0: It's going to be another two parter.
1: That's going to be another two parter. Maybe three parter. Sure. We will yeah. see.
0: We will see what we get into.
1: All right. Well, we're going to be back next week uh, so I can talk about uh, Rwanda and we're maybe going to have a guest on your Italy episode. I think so. It has been
0: tentatively confirmed.
1: Perfect. Let's uh, look forward to that then.
0: Did we get something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at podcast or send us an email at podcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we're not too big to admit we are wrong and it will be corrected.